Let's try that, putting that up there. And uh, there we go. Okay, good. So if you have questions for me, I will be watching the live Q&A chat box here. And uh, so throw them up under there. I'm using this uh, YouTube live Q&A feature. And so I will not be seeing your um, the regular comment stream. I, I don't even see it when I have the live Q&A turned on here. I can only see questions that are posted under that uh, prompt that I've just put up there that says, please leave your questions under this comment so I can see them during the stream. There we go. And Theta Novus, I love that username. <laughs> Theta Novus uh, has thrown one up already. Uh, absolutely. There we go. Okay, great. Good. Here come the questions. All right, guys. Um, so let's go ahead and get into this. I wanted to encourage everybody as we get started. Oh, speaking of encouraging, let me throw my book up here so we all are reminded that this is available to you. Uh, if you are truly curious about Scientology and want to get into the real details of it, um, then I highly recommend you check out my book, Scientology A to Zenu, and John Atak's um, Opening Minds, or uh, the, the seminal, uh, you know, fundamental work on Scientology, A Piece of Blue Sky. Let's sell these people A Piece of Blue Sky. I always enjoy um, promoting John's work while I'm promoting my own. Uh, and he doesn't, he doesn't pay me anything for that. I just do it because, uh, cause his work is so good and so important. Um, all right. So I guess, um, I guess we should just get into it here as far as answering questions goes. Um, so let's do it. Theta Novus asks, could you, oh, let's go ahead and hit over to the chat. There we go up on the screen. So the regular chat will show up on the uh, on the screen here. Um, oh, just not to Friday Night Lives, Juliana. Got it. Okay, good. Uh, excellent. Okay, I think we're getting the hang of this Q&A thing. So let's get to it here. Let me throw the first one up on the screen. Could you be a part of two destructive cults at the same time? For example, Scientology and Mormonism, if somehow you were, would you have to separate cult personalities? <laughs> yes, personalities again. All right. Um, you know, yeah. All right. So, yes, you can be absolutely part of more than one cult at one time. People do it all the time. Um, you can be a, I mean, and there's lots and lots of different ways this could manifest. A person could be a Scientologist, and they could also be attending, uh, oh, I don't know, not, then they're not going to be going to, you know, the Buddhist temple or, uh, you know, engaging in Kabbalah rituals, because Scientology is really hardcore about uh, other practices, they call it. They really want to be your exclusive cult. They don't want you, uh, you know, the, the Scientology is a jealous cult. They do not want uh, you bowing or honoring any other cults before them. Um, but you could still end up in an MLM, multi-level marketing scheme. Lots and lots of Scientologists get involved in Amway and Herbalife and other get-rich-quick multi-level marketing schemes and um, 
And when they do, guess what? They're involved in more than one cult because every single multi-level marketing scheme and the way that they are run is basically the exact same techniques and practices and thought reform and control that Scientology exerts. And it's interesting how they don't see it. They see other things like um, TM or uh, primal screen, you know, some other thing, some, you know, therapy. They see these as other practices, but they don't connect the dots with multi-level marketing schemes or large group awareness trainings even. Now, to a degree, they've recognized in Scientology that EST is bad and, uh, and uh, landmark form and all of the offshoots of that. They're not down with you going off and doing that. But work retreats or company things or stuff, you know, weird stuff that, that, that people will get into. Um, you, can have, you can have Scientologists engage in more than one of those things. And, of course, you could have a Scientologist who is a Mormon, comes into the faith, uh, comes into the church through at, in Utah, in Salt Lake City, right? And they walk into the Church of Scientology there, and they sign up and start doing Scientology. And Scientology wouldn't think about Mormonism as another practice because it's sort of more thought of as a religious thing. So it's really kind of funny. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, you could be part of that. Now, as far as having two separate cult personalities, um, it, the answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, you, you will develop, you will acculturate or you will acclimate to the demands of each group you're in and you will manifest different aspects of your personality or of the cult personality persona when you're in different locations, and they'll and they'll wax and wane. Um, you know, you go over into the Scientology building, and you put on your Scientology cloak or hat or whatever, however you want to think about it, and you do your Scientology thing, right? Now I'm going to do my TRs, and I'm going to do my auditing, and I'm going to do my study. But then you go to the temple on Sunday or whatever, right? And your full blown Mormon personality comes out, and you're engaging in those thinking processes and action patterns and so yeah you know you could now is it going to be you know some kind of like split personality thing no you know it's just different aspects of ourselves manifest in different ways depending on the context of our environment and social circle at the moment right when you are out with your buds at the bar or at the game or at the park or whatever um you know and women when you're out with your female friends, right, and some gaggle of women out doing a girls' night or something, you're going to act a little different than you act at home, aren't you? Right? Or you're going to act a little different than you act when you're at work. It's going to be very different. Right? So are you two different personalities? Well, in a way. Right? It's that kind of thing. Uh, only with a cult, especially when you get into Scientology or into the deeper levels of Mormonism or TM or some of these more dedicated cultic activities, then the cult persona is a stronger, heavier, harder manifestation. You become a, you become a harder person. You become a, a more difficult person to deal with or get along with because of the strictures demanded by the cult culture uh, or environment. So, um, so I think that's kind of how that works, right, as far as 
personality changes or differences. It's, it's like putting on a different set of clothes because you're going to go do a different thing. You dress up for the, you know, for the fancy party and you dress down to go down to the park, right, or go down to the bar. Um, you know, it's like that, only, um, only you could dial it up a little bit when it gets to the cult stuff. Okay, so let's, uh, it's a good question. All right, let's carry on here. Um, ha, Murder Hornet, have you ever assaulted anyone while in the Sea Org? Not that I remember. Um, my, yeah, not as a Sea Org member. Um, yeah, no, no, I did not hit anybody or push them around. What, that way, no, I did not. Um, I observed it happening, and it happened to me. Um, yeah, I just don't remember any instance of me assaulting anybody else like that. And that's the kind of thing I think I would remember. Um, certainly, you certainly yelled and screamed often, and and as as necessary, right? As I felt necessary. I would try to try to not do that as much as I could get away with it, but sometimes you had to kind of give somebody the severe reality adjustment. That's what we called it, an SRA. Um, and yeah, make sure you put those um, questions in the um, under the prompt that I established at the beginning of the show. Otherwise, I won't see them as questions and won't be able to answer them. Okay, this is a new thing. We've just this is the second time we're doing it, so I know it's new for everybody. But it's a it's a YouTube feature, and um, and make sure you get them in there because uh, that's where I'm drawing my questions from. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a cool tool. I, I agree. Okay. Um, anyway, as far as uh, assaults go. Um, yeah, the kind of stuff I would get up to was desk banging and, you know, and, and yelling at people really kind of, you know, kind of thing. And and I was so bad at it. Let me tell you guys a story because I'm going to, this will demonstrate how I was as a Sea Org member. Um, is I, I just couldn't really, you know, there were times I'm sure, there were, t- I, I'm sure there must have been times in, in the years that I was in, when I was given somebody the what for, that they were afraid or that they were scared or that they were, you know, impinged upon, right? But I was so bad at this that one time, and, and surely if it happened once, there were other times when I didn't notice or wasn't aware of this or it happened after I left the room or something, but one time I was, I was laying into this woman, and she was a Sea Org veteran. She'd been in the Sea Org longer than me. And, I was, and she, was, she was the flag rep over at LA Org, Dottie. She was the nicest woman. And she really had her head on straight. And she really was a very good staff member and Sea Org member. She was really earnest and, and very sincere about doing her job. And I was upset with her over some situation. And I just blurted out. I mean, I was really pissed. I was over there yelling at her like, God damn it, you know, this is not okay and you have to understand. And I and I blurted out this, you know, and if you don't get this done, I'm going to kill you, right? It was like this, like, bruh. And she laughed out loud, right? And, and, and of course, it was funny because it was so stupid. 
that I would say something like that. But I, you know, because I was trying to manifest, I was trying to muster up some kind of threat, you know, some kind of like, oh, I'm going to, I want to give it to you, you know. And anyway, uh, she laughed, you know, because it was, it was funny. Um, kind of totally blew the whole moment for me, but it was, um, but that was, you know, that's kind of how I was as a Sea Org member is I, I just don't, I, I was just so nice all the time. At least I was trying to be, I don't know that I was, and I'm sure I came across as a complete asshole plenty of times. Um, but I just couldn't really do it the same way other people could. You know, there were people in the Sea Org who walked around permanently pissed off just all the time. It was so easy for them to to bring that, you know, that sort of like, you know, that 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 really mean-spirited thing to the table and the forefront. Um, and, I, and I couldn't. Okay. Um, so there you go. Um, let's move on. Vernon asks, Chris, do you think that LRH experienced mental illness as a child that wasn't diagnosed? No, I do not. Uh, I don't see from my knowledge of his childhood that he manifested any signs of mental illness. I don't think, um, unless you think of pathological lying as a mental illness, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't really think of it that way. Um, you know, of course, then you have to start defining mental illness and, you know, is this something you can cure or get over, be, you know, be, be healed from? Um, is this a personality disorder? Is this something where you're just socially, you know, kind of on the fringe or on the edges? And it's just a manifestation of you just not able to get along with other people in an in a honest, open way. I think, I kind of think that's Hubbard's thing is I think he enjoyed and saw the utility of of being impressive by by making himself out to be more than he was um yeah you know I think Hubbard was that way as a youngster in looking into his life from the viewpoint of you know, did he suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy, which is a condition that I spoke years ago with Yuval Leor on my podcast about. And if you haven't seen that, I really, really recommend checking that podcast out. It's years old. It was way back. Um, it's uh, a new theory or a new way of understanding L. Ron Hubbard, something like that is the title of it. And we put forward the idea that perhaps he had lesions or or seizures. Temporal lobe epilepsy is is temporal on the temple on the, on the sides of the brain. You can have um, physical damage or lesions, and this that can cause seizures of a unique variety that bring about religious euphoria and um, and uh, delusions of grandeur. Often, people who are in a TLE seizure will think of themselves as godlike or or uh, um, yeah, or God themselves. They actually think they are God. Um, hypergraphia is another sign of this where you just write and write or, or you know, you're, you're, you're communicating a lot. You're writing a lot. Um, anyway, other things. You can check out that podcast. That's not mental illness. It's an actual physical condition that, that brings about radical personality change, especially during times of seizure. And there were two or three incidents of physical damage Hubbard had as a child or growing up as a young man that indicated that I sort of thought of as like, hmm, I wonder if that might have been the, 
you know, could have been a, a head blow or a, or a, a physical thing that might have either turned on or exacerbated that condition. Um, it's a total guess, okay? It's not like we know for sure he suffered from TLE, but all the symptomology matches up with his behavior over his life. So it's really quite interesting. Um, so that's kind of my take on Hubbard uh, as far as that goes. Um, okay, so let's carry on. We're getting a lot of questions in, and I want to make sure I cover as many as I can. So, um, so my, but my bottom line is no, I don't think Hubbard suffered from mental illness as a child. Um, Vernon asks, is Scientology less known in New Zealand than Australia? Uh, yeah, Scientology is minusculely tiny in uh, New Zealand. Uh, I think Auckland uh, is, the, is the only org there, if I remember right. And it's tiny, like we're talking, you know, a few tens of people maybe. Uh, Scientology is not taking over New Zealand. New Zealand's a pretty tiny place, and it's the sort of thing that you'd think, you know, they'd go all out to, to take over or conquer, but eh, nobody's interested. They're much more interested in, uh, in I don't know, pastoral uh, <laughs> settings. And it's so beautiful down there. Uh, I, every time I think about New Zealand, all I think about is uh, Lord of the Rings tours. <laughs> you know? Anyway, it's good, but it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful down there. I really want to go. I've been to Australia, but I haven't been to New Zealand. Uh, okay, John Doe, what is your favorite Rush album? Please don't just say say just moving pictures. Okay, I will not say just moving pictures uh, because moving pictures is not my favorite Rush album, although it is up there. It's number two. But for me, it's Power Windows. Um, that's the one that hit me uh, right where I lived as a teenager, and it was the right time, right place. Uh, for when I was in high school, I'd been introduced to Rush through um, Tom Sawyer, and also my mainline uh, connection with Rush to start with was a, was a B track called uh, Witch Hunt about modern um, censorship and book banning and book burning and stuff. I loved that song. I really connected with it in high school during the Satanic Panic and the whole push to get rid of books and book burnings and all the bullshit that was going on from the far-right Christian extremists. Um, and I, I really hated that. I hate censorship. I really do. I have a real problem with it. And, um, and I always have. And so that was a big prominent thing back then. But Power Windows was more prog rock and more uh, the sound of Rush that I really, really got into. Um, Marathon and, um, oh, God, all the songs on that album, all of them are great. Um, Middletown Dreams and um, uh, Mystic Rhythms, that's from Power Windows. I mean, those are great great songs and most of you have probably heard mystic rhythms and might not necessarily have known it because the intro is played often it's this 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 drum beat and stuff it's it's a it's an incredible song so that's my favorite rush album thank you for asking love those guys all right um matt b hey matt uh, how would you like to see future APA diagnostic statistical manuals refer to cultic identity disorder? The current version puts it under the category of other specified disassociative disorder. I know. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough 
call. And I'm not a psychiatrist, of course, and I'm not, uh, well, I've read about the DSM and the process of how things are categorized and put in there. Um, you know, and it's a lot by committee or there's sort of a voting process and this sort of thing, which I don't particularly agree with as a way of, of, of you know, figuring this stuff out. Um, so I have some issues with that. But as far as, um, I mean, it kind of fits where it is. It is an other specified disassociative disorder. That That is what it is. Uh, and... And it manifests in a lot of different ways as we went over on Friday and as I'll talk about probably again in the future. Um, you know, disassociative disorder is a kind of mental condition where um, over time and through repeated, as I understand it at least, through repeated incidents of uh, forcing a person into a, into this, into a sort of uh, pseudo-identity, the whole cultic thing, the behavior changes, how a person through trauma responses will manifest this new identity, this new idea of themselves. And it's really, really fascinating, but it's still kind of also a little hard to nail down exactly as like, okay, well, at what point do you, are you crossing a line over into, you know, adopting some new action patterns or ideas or, or ways of behaving Oh, at what point do we draw a line and go, okay, now it's a personality disorder? You know, these kind of, the, this is a tough question to answer. Um, there are other tough questions to answer connected with personality, like what is it? <laughs> Where does it come from? How, what is and isn't clearly the, the, this thing called personality, right? As opposed to other traits that we have or or other things that make us who we are or how we act or behave or think. Is that all personality? Or, is, or are we going to say, no, it's only these parts and there's other, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot to sort of get into about this. And it's not, an, and it's not yet something that I can speak uh, super, super intelligently about in terms of those kind of fine, granular understandings. So that's why I hesitate to make an authoritative answer to this question, Matt, and go, oh, well, here's how it should be. I'm sort of a little bit, well, let's think about this a little bit. How would it be, right? And so, so my answer is, yeah, I think, it's, uh, I, I think that's where it should be right now. I don't know that we have to have a separate category for cultic disassociative disorder because I think that's, it really does fit under the umbrella of disassociative disorder if you're even going to bring it all the way to a personality disorder and and then we're manif then we have to okay what's a disorder versus what's a mental illness and how are these things how are we thinking about these differently it's it's difficult isn't it when you kind of start thinking about this it's like it gets difficult to um to nail down uh the 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 borders so my answer, I guess, at the end of the day right now is I don't see a reason to change it, but I'm willing to get more information and, and maybe then I could answer more clearly about that. I feel like I'm a little all over the place with that one, but um, thanks for asking, Matt. It's, a good, it's definitely a good question. Um, okay. Just going, I'm just taking these straight down. I'm not even reading them before I highlight them here. Hi, Chris. What did L. Ron Hubbard's daily routine look like? Considering the large amount of text he produced, he must have been writing for several hours every day, right? All the best, Swedish David. Okay. Um, 
Elrond Hubbard. Uh, <laughs> Hubbard's days were different from one to the next. Um, I don't know that he had a set routine. He did on the ship. He had a routine on the ship by the time he got there of, God, I don't remember it. I'd have to look it up and dig it up, up out of the orders of the day. But there was a research phase or period of time he would be uh, researching. There was a rest period. There was a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Um, he was often up really, really late at night. He was a night owl kind of guy. So he could be up, you know, like till three or four in the morning doing research or writing. And he would often write, sometimes type. But most of the time he wrote policies and bulletins and then he would give them to his secretary or typists and they would type it up and issue it as the official church policy or or issues of course he would record lectures um or notes or you know dictate things um you know in his research room um but his days were very variable they really were, depending on where they were and what they were doing and what his interests were at the time. So it's not so it's hard for me to say, oh, well, here's what his day was, because it was always so wildly all over the place. Um, but yes, he did spend a good amount of time writing, but, but he could write and type very quickly. And if you see his handwriting, you see he was not taking his time to be legible. He expected people to just translate his chicken scratch and it was quite is quite bad i mean you could read it you get used to it and it was consistent but it was you know he would just whip it out and he wrote big so it would be like you know he'd write on a on a paper he wasn't writing small he was writing kind of big and he'd write on on legal sheets and and get going and get on these rolls so he did write a lot again hypergraphia uh, exaggerated amounts of writing is a symptom of TLE. And Hubbard is, um, without question, one of the claims to fame of Scientology is that the total materials of Scientology very likely, I, I, haven't, I haven't checked this, but very likely are greater. There's more written material in Scientology as a religious philosophy than any other religion I've ever seen or heard of. I was actually challenged on this the other day, and I went, damn, you're right, it probably is. There's probably more written there than, than anywhere else, certainly by the founder of the religion. If we, if we don't talk about all the, you know, like in Judaism, you have, you know, so many writings by so many people over the years. Islam as well just has books and books and books of stuff of people translating or interpreting their ideas of what Muhammad had to say. But if you just take the original, you know, founders and their writings, uh, I mean, hell, we don't have anything in Christianity at all from Jesus. And he didn't write down anything. We don't have a whole lot from Muhammad. We have what, he, what we've got, and that's it. And um, Hubbard, though, thousands and thousands of pages, literally. So, um, so there's a lot there. Okay. Merchant of Chaos. How do Scientologists see out-of-body experiences due to illness? I had severe fever twice and saw, hallucinate, myself standing next to my body. What would an auditor have said to me? Oh, no, no big deal. That wouldn't have been any big deal at all. That would have been, oh, okay, well, you know, get back in your body. 
Um, you know, it, it, exteriorization is a permanent condition for most people. It's just the, it's just a matter of where they're aware of being. That's where you are. I mean, you're in a way you're always outside of your body, or you're always sort of separate from your body, according to the Scientology way of thinking. But in terms, but I but I understand your question in terms of perceiving, not through your eyeballs. And um, and if that were to happen because of an illness, then an auditor would simply acknowledge and. Uh, tell you to, you know, okay, great, what do you want to do about that? Or what, what, what's happening? Or what do you see? Or, you know, tell me what's going on. It's not really given that much importance in that context or in that situation, depending a lot on how you feel about it as the preclear. Like, oh my God, I'm out of my body. I can't believe it. This is amazing. Okay, great. Cool. Well, I guess we're, you know, done with whatever it is we're doing. Because it, if you're getting an assist or an auditing action as a preclear, and you go exterior, that process is done. Like odds, unless it specifically states not to, you're done uh, with the session and with that process for this at this time. Exteriorization is a standard. Okay, we're ending the session now. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, as far as any, you know, as far as um, having the. Um, yeah, as far as an auditor, you know, I, I, that's the only kind of way I could think of as an auditor sitting there next to you if you're laying in bed sick. It's probably giving you an assist or is probably trying to audit you. And then you're like, oh, hey, I'm out of my body. Good. We're done with the auditing. I don't know. That's, that's kind of how that would, that's what would happen. Uh, and that's what I could say about that. Okay. Yeah. Auditor would have said end of session. <laughs> All right. Vernon, again, if a staff member becomes drunk and hits a person or people, will the org defend them? Probably not. Uh, no, that would be out ethics. I mean, in, in my time, that would have been pretty grossly out ethics, right? If you get drunk and start beating on people, um, you're going to be in trouble, right? One, you're inebriated. Two, you're making an embarrassment out of yourself, right, because of your inebriation. And then three, you're assaulting somebody. Like, what? What are you doing? Now, of course, other people will rush to your defense if it's some kind of bar fight or something. Sure, Scientologists are going to stand with their own, but um, but but no, you're you know you're the you're you know am I the asshole? Yeah, if you get drunk and you know hit somebody, you're the asshole, right? So Scientologists are going to think the same way about that as anybody else would. Uh, obviously, depending on the context, so. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in a sensible sort of here's an individual getting drunk and doing that, not a bunch of Scientologists are out partying or something. I mean, that, you know, even then, if a bunch of Scientologists are out drinking and partying and having a good time and one of them gets drunk and um, and starts hitting somebody that, you know, again, hey, man, that's not OK. I don't know. That's that's uh, that's what I could see there. All right. Edu Cohen, um, Chris, do you have any podcasts that you regularly listen to or watch on YouTube? No, I don't. I wish I had the time to, um, but I don't. I, I, I catch lots of shows and episodes and videos on YouTube all the time. I'm constantly on YouTube, but I am not regularly watching or listening to any other content creators on a routine basis. Um, obviously I will look into other channels. I've, you know, I've watched John's shows sometimes, John Atak's shows, cause he has interesting guests. Um, of course I've watched some other creators, um, 
Yeah. Huberman, Andrew Huberman's got some interesting things to say. Um, I've watched a lot of content about making content, stuff like that, right? There's that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but no, nothing regular or routine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm subscribed to a lot of different stuff. Oh, cooking channels. I'm very, very much into learning how to cook on YouTube, by the way. Um, so I'm, I'm subscribed to a lot of those kind of channels. Um, sort of thinking to myself right now, maybe I should just take a look and see what I'm, uh, make sure I'm not missing or forgetting anything. Ah, here we go. Um, Looking at who I'm subscribed to. Oh, Legal Eagle. There's that's a that's a YouTube channel I watch pretty regularly. Every time he posts content, I'm usually pretty interested in it, um, and I really like the way he presents his information. There are gaming channels also that I will watch or be interested in, um, having to do with a game called Scythe and other games. So there's Dice Tower and there's a couple of gaming channels. Um, uh, Shut Up and um, Roll, I think, is another one, or Shut Up and Something. That's a British, uh, or a, are they British? Anyway, there's that's a channel I watch. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess it's kind of, that might surprise you guys that I'm not, like, you know, uh, all up on all the other cult stuff. But I, I um, you know, when you when you live and work with this stuff all day long, I'm sort of looking through the other things I'm, I'm uh, subscribed to here. Um, I kind of keep track of Seth Andrews, the Thinking Atheist channel. Um, I like that one. I don't regularly watch it, but I do pay attention. So, yeah, I see a lot of um, food channels <laughs> and entertainment stuff. Um, I do enjoy I do enjoy watching a couple of channels from time to time. I don't I don't make you know take time to watch them all the time. But there is a movie critic called the Critical Drinker and another guy called uh, with a channel called Call Me Chato, uh, who have good takes or interesting takes on uh, modern cinema that I tend to enjoy watching. So I will. Uh, I will check those out pretty regularly, but, but not, you know, not daily or anything. So you asked, I answered. There you go. All right. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, RoboTube one, Chris, would the traits of OCD be a help or a hindrance in Scientology? There seems to be a lot of perfection required, but also some very sloppy work is necessary to get things done. Yeah, exactly. You're going to, um, going to have a hard time in the sea organ scientology with ocd because um and i mean like full on i don't mean like you're a picky eater you're a picky person and you like a clean space they're gonna like you in the sea organ scientology if you're if you're sort of uh what's the word um attention to detail right if you're the kind of person who who likes to have everything where it's supposed to be and that kind of thing and i i am that kind of guy i'm not i mean you can see it's not like I have all my things, but everything has its place. And I know where things are to the point where I could probably close my eyes and go get them kind of thing, which is kind of funny. Um, so to that degree, you know, the, the, the regularity and routine of Scientology, especially as a staff member and a Sea Org member, is um, sort of fits in with that. But... There are so many times, and I'm thinking more Sea Org here than Scientology, 
you know, full on. Like public Scientologists or regular, the experience of being a Scientologist isn't necessarily going to impact an, an OCD condition on a daily basis. There will be problems and there will be um, problem solving that will occur with that condition in 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 different ways okay um you know being uh being hyper detail oriented as an auditor or as an e-meter operator or as a student is going to slow you down it's going to um it's going to frustrate the staff trying to get you through courses or trying to get you through things because you're going to probably be somebody who's going to be taking time and interest in every little thing or in minute details or in things that other people won't necessarily be as interested in. You're going to become very focused on that and want to sort that out. That would happen, and that would happen with public Scientologists. It happened to me a few times. Um and that can le- that can increase frustration because a lot of Scientology is now 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 go go go. But as a Sea Org member, it would there would be instances or or times when it would be maddening to have OCD because you are you're being demanded to to do things or produce things and just get it done. Just get it done. I don't care how good or detailed or this or that it is. Just get it done. Uh, let's go, you know, kind of thing. Sloppy details don't matter, right? And that could create friction, I imagine, um, in those kind of, um, yeah, in those kind of circumstances. Huh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, that's kind of my off-the-cuff answer. I'm sure that there could be a, a, a more detailed analysis of that done. I'm only speaking from a sort of cursory understanding of OCD as a full-on personality disorder. I've not actually dived into the details of it enough to speak more than I have today here on this. So that's as far as I think I'll go with it. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I catch myself sometimes because it's funny to me how often I will go out of my way to tell you guys I don't know stuff or the limits of my knowledge compared to what other people do. And I, and I don't know if I do that too much or not. Um, you guys will let me know. I'm not sure about that, if I, I, how that comes across. But I'm just trying to be honest about what I know and don't know. So it's, anyway. All right, Abraham stuff. Is there any music you aren't allowed to listen to in Scientology apart from SP music? Um, no. There's no music that is forbidden to you that I ever ran across. But if you are listening to something that is upsetting, interbulating, uh, or disagreeable to senior people around you, right? If you're a public Scientologist and you are listening to music for some reason in the middle of the org and a staff member comes along and doesn't like it, you know, you're going to hear about it. Uh, if a Sea Org member doesn't like it or thinks it's N theta, right, or bad or wrong, you're going to hear about it. Um, 
of course, if you're just making noise in an org, you're going to hear about it because they need to be relatively uh, quiet places, actually, at least in terms of the auditing areas. You can't be, you know, making a lot of music, loud noise and stuff, right? Yelling and screaming is okay, but not punk rock music or, or Slayer, you know, death metal or something. So um, I'm so I'm so dated <laughs> with some of this stuff. But anyway, no, there's no, I'm not aware of any music that you just straight up, no, you can't listen to that music. I've never, never heard of that. All right. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, Trent. Um, Trent Swooford, love all the work you do. I'm sure this may have been discussed before, but does Tom Cruise sincerely believe the upper OT teachings of Scientology Xenu, volcanoes, etc. Yes, he does. Yes, absolutely. All the way. He's fully committed, fully in, 100%. Um, he is as committed of a Scientologist to the belief set as you can be. All in. And he really thinks it's true. Yeah. Okay, moving right along. Okay, Theta Novus, what was the craziest thing you did while in the Sea Org just to get a stat up? Um, see, it's funny. The first thing that comes to my mind is actually when I was a staff member, not a Sea Org member, where I had to go off and babysit kids and wash cars and, take, and clean up a house one time and so that to free up this woman so she would have time to go into the course room and do her course. And I thought it was the most ludicrous, stupid thing. I, I was so pissed off with my senior for ordering me to go do this. But she demanded I do it because, um, uh, because we needed to get the stats up. And we needed to get this course completion. And so she had to come in and do her course. But she couldn't because she had a, she had a kid, a house to clean, a car to wash, and a bunch of chores to do. And I ended up being her butler, maid, nanny, babysitter all day so she could have the time to go beyond course. And I was really pissed. This was early on as a staff member in Santa Barbara. Um, and I think I was still in my teens. It was really early on. I think it was like the first year I was on staff. And I, and I had this idea like what I'm going off post to go do this so that you can get this. And it was kind of like, well, where's your solution? If you're not going to go do this, then then where's the course completion going to come from? And I didn't have another solution, so fuck you, go do it, right? It was really mean and quite stupid. And I, and I just couldn't, and it really hit me. It was like, oh, okay, do anything you need to do, right? Yoo-hoo, anything at all, it doesn't matter. Let's go off and, and leave the org all day and go do whatever the fuck, right? Because it's, as long as it gets the stats up. And I, and I just thought, oh, this is, you know, it was still when I was still in a little bit of a critical, able to think for myself stage. It was still early on, right? And, uh, and I kind of got the beat down. I kind of got the, you know, fuck you, asshole. You're the stop now. You're the barrier. Now I'm the asshole because I don't want to go off my job to go, you know, take care of this woman's personal life issues. And it just, it, it really pissed me off. Anyway, that was back when I was a staff member. As far as the Sea Org stuff goes, I'm trying to think. Craziest stuff I did. Uh, 
Um, oh my God. Okay, here it is. Um, yeah, this is pretty wild. Uh, only in that it's not like illegal or anything, but it's just, I can't believe I did this. Um, and I actually did it and I pulled it off. It was, I mean, in a way, I, I was on a Sea Org mission to get a woman from uh, Washington State to Las Vegas for staff. And I, and, I've, and I think I've mentioned before, I had to go up there for like three weeks. She had, her husband had just died recently, and she, had, she was a fairly new Scientologist, and she needed to move. She needed to be moved, right? And she had a house with like just stacks. It wasn't a hoarder house, but it was, there was a lot to deal with. They'd been married a long time. This was an older guy. They had bank statements in their, in their garage piled up this high. They had so much stuff to deal with. And I was there for about a week or two dealing with all this stuff. I, my job was to, to do the logistics work of physically moving her house and her stuff to from Washington to Las Vegas. But she needed to arrive now. We weren't waiting for the house move to get done for her to move. And then I was going to stay behind and deal with everything that had to be dealt with. And I did. It recycled a bunch of her crap, took stuff to the dump, um, emptied the house, cleaned it all out, sold stuff off. I mean, it was weeks I was there doing all of this, wrapping up and dealing with all this. Well, in order to get her from there to Vegas, she had a job and she needed to quit this job and she wasn't really ready to do that. And she didn't really know how to go about doing it. And she was, in other words, she was having, you know, uh, cold feet. She was like not, you know, she was going to use this job as a way to stay and, you know, maybe get out of doing her staff commitment. Well, this wasn't going to fly. So I was ordered directly, right, by my senior on the phone. It's like, you go deal with this. You go deal with this. And it was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And it's like, you go talk to her boss and you deal with it. And I was like, okay. And I was in my uniform, my class A blue dress uniform. And I walked into her place of business with her. I said, okay, we're going to go down there and we're going to talk to your boss. And she's like, we are? And I was like, yep. And I went down there with her and I went into the office with the boss who had never heard of the Sea Org, didn't know a goddamn thing about Scientology. And I said, Hi, I'm a representative for the Church of Scientology, and Donna, whatever her name was, right, is now going to be working for the church, and in fact, we're helping her to relocate to Las Vegas, and so she's going to have to terminate her employment here, and so I'm here to facilitate that and help her with that, and this must have come across as the fucking weirdest thing you could possibly run into as a business manager some dude walking in in uniform like you know like anyway like, like I might as well have been from the Salvation Army or something like like who is this guy what is this right and he's looking at her going 
and this is what you want to do this is uh, this is this is okay with you or this is what you're and she's like yep yep and it must have looked like a hostage situation i swear because she was a little meek you know a little a little shy a little bit well yeah it is i want to do this you know and i'm sitting there you know smiling nodding oh yes this is all very normal and this is exactly how people do this right and uh and it worked anyway she quit her dot i i quit her job for her anyway i it to me it just strikes me as completely bizarre and even you know he must have been wondering about stockholm syndrome or something but uh but that was the craziest thing i did in order to get a stat because that was what was needed to get her to quit her job to get in a car to drive to vegas so i could then wrap up you know the rest of my my project there it's not necessarily sexy or whatever or, or insane or over the top, but it was it was a pretty stupid and crazy thing, and that's the answer to the question. So there you go. I can't believe I still I look back on it. It's embarrassing. It's almost like Jesus. What must have that guy? What must have those people thought? All right. Um, well, speaking of not knowing things, uh, Merchant of Chaos, what do you know about Scientology in Puerto Rico? Most of the religious population is Christian and not particularly wealthy. Uh, I, I don't know anything about Scientology in Puerto Rico. I didn't even know if it has a presence there. Uh, it's If it does, it's negligible, obviously. Nobody in Puerto Rico is, cares about Scientology. But I really literally know nothing about Scientology in Puerto Rico, so I can't, I can't say anything more than that. Um, What's this? I am I missing a reference on this? I'm not sure. Exion, I almost missed this early live chat. Sorry if you already answered this question. But where's the stage performance of Beetlejuice playing? Oh my God, Lauren Bobert. Ah, ah. Now I get it. Uh, I don't know where that where that was playing. Um, I I don't know, but it was here in Denver, and yeah. Good times. Lauren Bobert, uh, House of Representatives member, got escorted out of a um, showing of Beetlejuice, the a play, a, a, a stage production, I think, uh, because she was uh, feeling up and being felt up by her date in, and vaping and making a complete obnoxious ass of herself in the middle of this per, of this uh, musical performance. And uh, that's standard Lauren Bobert for you. Uh, she is uh, as awful as they come and uh and that was a bit of a thing so yeah good times all right Xion. uh here's a question i can answer how well can memory really be trusted to be accurate what about dub in especially in session yeah this is a tough one um because the thing is that the truth is the real truth of memory is that it is incredibly fallible and very, very unreliable. And it's rough to say that because there is so much that we rely upon um, from anecdotal evidence, from people's testimony, from their memory. When it comes to traumatic events, when it comes to abusive situations, when it comes to crimes being committed against people, we have to rely on their memory of what happened. What do you recall occurred? Please tell me in all the details that you can. And one of the things that science and neuroscience especially is uncovering is how flawed our recalls are, especially when it comes to details and how 
over time, we can fool ourselves by reinforcing details that we believe happened or wanted to have happen or think occurred because of our biases or our uh, opinions or emotions. And we can misremember a thing and then continue to misremember it, believing that we are absolutely accurate in our memory and double and triple down on bad or wrong details just because of the way we reinforce our our concepts, our memories. So this happens where you might, you, and it can be startling. You're absolutely sure you remember this incident that happened to you when you were a kid. You remember how people were dressed. You remember who was there. You remember um, the details of what was said. And then somebody shows you a picture or a video that completely contradicts a memory that you are 100% sure happened exactly as you remember it and you were totally wrong. They were dressed differently. Words were different. There weren't the same people in the room that you remember being there. You're conflating your memories. You're combining them together and you're not even aware of it because how could you be aware of it? How can you fact check your own memories if you don't have external objective evidence of a video of a picture of an audio recording, something that will jar your memory, as they say, that will remind you that the actual facts of the situation were A, B, C, not A, B, C, D, E, or A, D, E, or A, F, 9, right? Like, it, like you can be really off, and it can be really, really shocking. So can we trust our memory to be accurate? More often than not, the answer is actually no. But it's, it's what we've got. And trauma can be the real mule in the mix. It can really screw things up both ways. It can make things more memorable, and, and you can recall that more accurately. But on the other hand, some trauma responses include amnesia, where you have no memory of it whatsoever, and everything in between. So even when we talk about remembering trauma, we can't be 100% sure that we're recalling all the details with accuracy. We just can't. Um, Dub in, as they say in Scientology, is the uh, adding in or creation of memories that never happened. You're just making it up completely and not aware of the fact that you're making it up. You believe it's true. Right, These false memories, this is a very, very controversial area for people because um, some false memories can be induced or created at suggestion. Some people are very suggestible when it comes to that. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are. There have been so many interesting research studies and experiments done on this where you can suggest a thing to a person through a question. Can you recall the time? Can you remember that time? that you saw that red balloon at the mall? Can you remember a time you saw a red balloon at the mall, right? And a lot of people will come up with an answer to that question. Oh, yeah, I remember this one time. It never happened. The mere question, 
oh, you can create this sort of picture or image in your mind or idea of a memory that you go, oh, yeah, I remember this one time. No, you don't, right? But you're trying to satisfy the conditions of the question because you want to answer positive for some reason or you feel motivated to or you feel you'd be letting the person down if you didn't have an answer or whatever, right? Whatever, it's not even a conscious thing. And you can create false memories that way. It doesn't even have to be some big nefarious, you know, uh, Manchurian candidate situation or something. Um, so memory's rough, man. It's a, it's a tough one. Um, because at the same time, we obviously can remember things. And we can remember lots of things. And we can remember lots of things very accurately. So it's not just because you have a memory, you have to make, you know, you have to assume it's false or assume you're making it up. I wouldn't go there. It's not that bad, but it can be. And, you know, and how do you prove it wrong? How do you, you know? And so anyway, like I said, it's, uh, it's rough. And especially in session, now we're talking about now auditing. We're entering in a whole nother pile of nonsense on top of auditing. And this is what I've been talking about lately um, and for some time, right? As there are, there are, you're incentivized in auditing to create false memories. You are indoctrinated in Scientology to create false memories. It's in your best interest as a preclear in Scientology to create false memories. <laughs> so are you going to do that? Probably. Past life memories, past life overts, sins, moral transgressions. In answer to questions like, you know, is there an earlier similar time you, you know, uh, murdered somebody? Is there an earlier similar time you... Uh, did a bad thing? Is there an earlier similar time you uh, manifested that evil intention to destroy them all? Oh, yeah, there is. Oh, absolutely there is. There was this earlier time I manifested the, man the, the evil purpose to destroy them all by blowing up a planet, right? Uh, death, I death starred the place or I committed genocide uh, of the civilization 20 million years ago, right? Uh, you're just making shit up at this point, but that's you're incentivized to do so by all of the indoctrination and the belief set of Scientology and the fact that we're now going to add controls into this session of an e-meter that's telling you what to think and an auditor who's not letting you out of the room until you satisfy his process, which means going earlier similar and coming up with an answer to the question, and, 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 right? All the control structures of Scientology that, are go that go into place that, like I said, incentivize you to do that. So, um, so no, at bottom line is, no, your memory can't really be trusted as well as you'd like to or think it can be. And that's something we should be, as critical thinkers, we should be very, very wary of. Okay, I cannot, I cannot believe I just looked at the time and it's already been an hour. I am, I am completely blown away right now that I have been talking here for an hour. It literally feels like I've been here for about 15 minutes. Let's take a few more. 
because these are such great questions and you got so many of them here and I want to I want to answer them. So let me see what we can do in a, in the next few minutes if y'all want to stick around with me for this. Um Xion, how about TRs Rayway really talked about like TR2 and a half or TR5N? Anything about TR101 etc. Can you talk about them? I can. Um, it's a little hard for me to talk to them about all of these off the top of my head because I don't really remember TR5N right now. I remember it exists. I'd have to go look it up. And the upper index, of course. Um, TR2.5 is a half acknowledgement. Between TR2 and TR3, you have TR2.5. Uh, it's an acknowledgement. It's a half acknowledgement. You're trained to, to say something to a person that will encourage them to continue talking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, go on. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, sure. All of these are two and a half. You know, you're hearing it, and you're encouraging the person to go on. There's a whole drill on that, right? So it's an acknowledgement is a full stop. That's TR2. Thank you. I got that. Good. Oh, yeah, I understand. That's an acknowledgement. You're done. We're finished. I, I totally got it. I duplicate you utterly. <laughs> That's a two. And a two and a half is, ah, mm, go on. Yeah. Mm. Okay, big difference. All right. Um, ah. Okay, let me let me flip through here because there's a there's some questions coming in that I've answered before. Oh my God, do I browse railway timetables and dictionaries for pleasure? Yes, I do. Okay, it's a question off the personality test. That's why it's a kind of an in joke question. Do I think Danny's family will visit him in prison? Yes, I am absolutely positive Danny's family will visit him in prison. Yes. A hundred percent that will happen unless he's been declared suppressive. And I don't see that happening right now. But who knows? That's the big question right now. Is Danny Masterson declared suppressive or not? He should be. But is he? Who knows? But, um, but if he's not, his family will absolutely visit him in jail. Yeah, of course. No brainer on that one. Uh, just because this is funny to me, I will take a look at this. Um, I heard on Mark Headley's YouTube channel that there's an oxygen tank under David Miscavige's desk to help with his asthma at Gold Base. Have you heard of this? Um, no, I've never, ever, ever heard of that. And I would be really surprised if that was true. Um, now, just as a note... David Miscavige doesn't go to Gold Base anymore and hasn't for many, many years. So I, I, are we implying he has an oxygen tank under his desk at Flag also, I guess? Or, you know, I don't know. But it's uh, first I've ever heard of anything like that. I could not, I cannot confirm, I can neither confirm nor deny that information. Uh, Henny, hey Henny, uh, do you think Danny Masterson had his own cult going on? People denying his behavior and the obliviousness of his drug use, prolific alcohol consumption, drugging the people, wonder where he got those drugs. 
Um, no, no, Henny. I would not say that Danny Masterson has his own cult. Uh, we we got to be clear about our terminology, and cult is a very, very specific thing with a long list of um, characteristics that go along with it. And just because somebody is evil or a jerk or manipulates people around them doesn't make them a cult leader. It makes them a manipulator. It makes them a criminal. It makes them a bad person. It makes them the asshole in the room. But it doesn't make them a cult leader. Cults have codependent relationships between the leader and the followers. Cults have us versus them thinking. Cults have um, incessant demands for money and power and, and things like that to the cult leader. Cults have a dogmatic belief set or set of ideas that are unique to the cult that don't exist outside of that culture. And everything in the cult is dialed up to 11. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a speci- it's a specific contextual application of coercive control uh, by a cult leader, by a man- manipulative personality, a narcissistic abuser, um, over a set of people uh, that, that create their own little mini society or culture. Danny Masterson didn't do that. Danny Masterson utilized the cult he was in the Church of Scientology, as a praying ground and as a, uh, a hunting ground and as a, a structure or, or, or organization that would back his plays, that would, that would protect him. He is a made man in the mafia of Scientology. We don't look at made men and say, do they have a cult around them? They're part of a cult, and they are benefiting from being in that cult, and they are profiting from and, and being protected by that cult. And that's how we should think about Danny Masterson. He's not a cult in and of himself. He's a member, a powerful and influential member of a cult. But he's not the cult leader. David Miscavige is. He's, and, and Masterson as a celebrity, then this gets, this gets a little, this gets complicated by the fact that Danny Masterson as a celebrity, like every celebrity, every one of them, they develop a cult of personality around themselves to that degree they're a cult leader in that they are an object of affection desire interest motivation that's a cult of personality people are motivated to follow this person because their interests are centered around this person their music their acting their their art whatever it is about the person that that people find fascinating and gravitate to you can build up a cult of personality around that individual. But that doesn't have to be a destructive cult. By definition, it's not. It's, a, it's an intensely interesting activity that people, you know, an individual who, who, who symbolizes or epitomizes this interest. And, um, and that's a cult of personality. And Danny Masterson, as a celebrity, has that. Everybody who watches the 70s show, oh, him, what? You know, that guy, oh, but I like Danny Masterson, right? That's, a, that's kind of that celebrity thing. But that's not the same thing as uh, what David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard are up to. That's uh, very different. 
very, very different activity. And even though Danny Masterson is a criminal, a convicted criminal at this point, that doesn't make him a cult leader. It's nuanced, I understand. I'm asking you to, to, to dive into and embrace the shades of gray that I'm trying to explain here. You know, if you want to be simple Simon about thinking about it, and I don't mean you, Henny, are. I'm talking to the broad audience here. Um, you know, fine, Masterson's a cult leader, but, he, but he's not. It's not. It doesn't really work that way, okay? And people who would sort of say that or push that are, are not understanding the nuances of how this stuff works and i'm trying to trying to separate that i hope my explanation just now it's the best explanation i can give you i hope that works to to differentiate those things um okay good question Okay, Merchant of Chaos, what are the most impactful books that you've read for your master's degree? Are there any that you recommend? Yes, I, there, I do. Um, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by Robert J. Lifton is, a, is the seminal work on understanding cultic control and influence and how thought reform or brainwashing happens. So that's absolutely part of the program and definitely part of something I would, I would push. Also, another book by... Um, um, uh, Kaldani. Uh, let me look it up here. It's called Influence. Um, Robert Kaldani, I think. Yes, Dr. Robert Kildani. Um, C i a l d i n i. So I think that's spell. I think that's pronounced Kildani or Kildani. Um, he wrote a book called Influence. I've done a whole like seminar on it here as a live stream um, a couple months ago that book is life-changing and it should be if you read that book and your own psychology and understanding of yourself and other people is not radically different then you didn't read the book you didn't get it right it's not just about how to market products to people that book is the bible of how to influence people what is it that causes people to go from a to b how do you change a person's mind how do you change their thinking how do you get them to like something how do you get them to hate something it's all in that book it's amazing material those are two that come to mind right away uh from our from my master's program Well, sure, Hugh. Um, okay, let me answer this one. I've, I've addressed this uh, before, and it's always worth addressing again. Why is it that Scientologists don't understand the idea of falsification or evidentiary reasoning? Hubbard makes a claim unsupported by physical evidence, and his followers swallow the claim like fact. Because L. Ron Hubbard has been adopted by all Scientologists as an authority figure. And when, you're in a fig when you have a figure who's in authority, you don't have to get all the evidence from them to every claim they make. You trust them. You believe that they are telling you the truth and that they are giving you evidence-based rational information. That's how. That's what it means to imbue somebody else with authority. 
authority is necessary for us to have social hierarchies and structures. In other words, for us to have a society at all, we have to be able to imbue other people with degrees of authority. And we do this all the time. All of us do this all the time. I don't have to go ask Neil deGrasse Tyson to prove to me why it is that, you know, light or planets or Pluto's not a planet anymore or whatever claim he makes, I don't then go, oh, really, Neil? Oh, yeah? Well, show me. Where's the evidence, bud? Now, often while he's, he as an example, a scientist, often while he makes a claim, he will offer the evidence Uh, or reasoning for what that is. But he doesn't present you the entire paper or all the evidence behind it, does he? Of course he doesn't, right? He makes a TV show or he does a thing or he goes on a podcast and he says, oh, well, you know, the planetary rotational blah, blah for, you know, for Jupiter is much larger than the one for Pluto and therefore dot, dot, dot. And that's as far as we're, ha- we're happy to take it right there. That's it. That's all the explanation we need because we know he does know or we, f- we have faith that he knows, if I dare use that word. Uh, you know. But, but let's be real. That is what we've got. We are imbuing him with authority. This is a really important point. Because people will walk around thinking, well, I'm evidence-based. I take ever I don't take anybody's claims without evidence. Yes, you do. You do it all the time. We all do, right? Because we wouldn't be able to get along in life if we didn't. Now, that being said, in terms of Scientologists and why Scientologists imbue Hubbard with this authority, it's because early on in their Scientology experience, on their first exposures to it, whether it was a class or an auditing session, something happened that convinced that person that L. Ron Hubbard really knows what he's talking about. They learned a a common sense principle off of a low-level course about how to communicate, how to care for their kids, how to get along at their job. Hubbard, or through Hubbard's materials, they picked up something And they were like, damn, nobody ever told me that before. And probably 20 people have told them that before. But not that way and not in this context and not when the person was ready to receive the information and was willing to listen, you know, all those things, right? And they took in this Hubbard information. Oh, the ARC triangle, affinity and reality and communication and they form this little triangle and if you improve affinity with a person if you like them more if you you know if you kind of in in this affinity mode with a person then you could communicate with them and this will improve your agreement with them your reality with them the arc triangle and if you improve your reality, then that means you, that will improve your affinity and the triangle gets bigger because we're talking and communicating and our reality and our affinity is going up, up, up. You know, like people look at this information as revelatory as like, 
oh my God, I had no idea. What? This is amazing. This explains relationships. This explains communication. This explains people. No, it doesn't. But they think it does because it's so interesting and new to them. And they go, wow, a whole triangle. That's such, a, that's such an interesting and uh, insightful piece of work. And then they take that in and they go, this L. Ron Hubbard really knows what he's talking about. Now, two or three of those kinds of things happen. You learn something or experience something and you go, this Hubbard guy. This guy really gets it. This guy really understands people. This guy really understands life. And that's the point where you can then take the next piece of information he gives you in and you don't have to think about it as much because you're ready to accept it from him because you've given over the idea that this guy knows what he's talking about. We all do it all the time with people we know. And there's people, we sort of categorize people in our minds as to their trustworthiness or how much we believe them. And you know what I'm talking about because there's people that you don't trust, right? There's people you you have to work with them or you have to be family members with them. You're related to them or something. Uh, or they're a friend, kind of. You know, but you don't really totally kind of trust them, right? You kind of mentally marked this is not somebody that's trustworthy because they probably burned you a couple times or something. Then there's the people we're like, oh, no, this person's not going to lie to me. This person's telling the truth. This person is somebody I can listen to. This is somebody I can have faith in. That's the cult leader relationship for cult members is that leader is the ultimate source of truth and authority for them. And that, what I just laid out, is kind of how it happens. And I hope that that makes sense. Because that's the answer to the question. Oh, oh my God. And we continue to go on here. And uh, let's see. Oh, I'm almost to the end. So let's, get, let's go down. I'm on the phone. Um, okay, I'm not. <laughs> um. Dorte, in your time as a member of the ESO, did you ever experience being ordered to go see a movie by one of the members of the Celebrity Center? No, I did not. I was never ordered around by anybody at Celebrity Center at any time because I wasn't a staff member there. Um, I was ordered to go see Battlefield Earth many times during the release of Battlefield Earth. That was the only movie I was ever ordered to go see as a Sea Org member, and we had to see it many times, but at least they gave us the money to pay for the tickets. Um... How frequent are Church of Scientology motivational speakers like Michael Chan? They are constant and have been since the 80s. There have been people who have made a living selling Scientology to other people. We call these professional FSMs, professional field staff members. They're not staff, they're not Sea Org, but they make bonuses and commissions off of the sales of Scientology services that they facilitate. And so they will go put on seminars or workshops and they'll fly around and do motivational Scientology speaking and they'll make money doing it. 
And um, that's Michael Chan and, and others. And they've always been around uh, for, for many, many years. Um, certainly since the 80s, maybe in the 70s. I wasn't around to observe them then because um, I was just a little kid. But uh, from the 80s forward, I've seen people who do that. It's a small group of people. It's not a lot. There's a handful of them, literally. You can count them on like one or two hands. There's not lots. Um, there used to be more. It used to be more profitable to do it, um, but it's harder these days. Okay. Um, how does local color asks, how does the way the Church of Scientology sees the outside world affect their approach in attacking enemies and gaining recruits? They seem to think they can tell the degraded outsiders anything. Yeah, that's right. They do. Uh, Scientologists are merciless and ruthless when they are attacking critics. They do not look at them as human beings. They look at them as suppressive people, uh, which means that they are basically rocks of little rocks of evil, concentrated evil. That's what suppressive people are, and they do not uh, afford them or think about them uh, as people deserving of human rights. Uh, because they are subhuman as far as Scientologists are concerned. SPs who attack Scientology deserve to be lined up against the closest wall and shot with dull bullets, as L. Ron Hubbard would have said. That's uh, how he described it. Uh, shoot them with dull bullets. And as far as uh, recruiting people, it's kind of the same thing. You know, Scientologists and Sea Org members especially see themselves as people who have a line into sacred knowledge and truth. Uh, the sacred lore, so to speak, of Scientology. And because they have this knowledge, this is, this is cult 101, right? Cult members feel imbued with superpowers and knowledge and skills that make them better than anybody else. They, they really think of themselves as senior to other people. This is, this is just uh, crucial to what cults are. Every cult. They all have this us versus them. We're better than everybody else. And Scientology is absolutely no exception. So when they're recruiting people, and as a former recruiter, I can tell you, right, that's how we would come at it, is we're the ones who are blessing you with our presence and our time, and I'm deigning to you know, give you this opportunity to come into the Sea Org and be a slave and work for us to clear the planet, clear the universe, be part of the elite of this planet. This is what we're offering you. And so that's the attitude that we would have as Sea Org members and Scientologists toward the outside world. Yeah. Um, okay, so there we go. Ah, there we go. Rev Girl figured it out. Um, ah, yes, Joe, I will be happy to wrap up the show here now. We went for an extended length of time. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, and yes, I do consultation. Okay, guys, uh, I'm available uh, to talk to you. It's a professional thing, all right? I'm going to charge you for it. Um, but I don't charge a lot, and I have had 100% um, satisfied customers so far, at least as far as I know. And 
what I will do is I can uh, advise, direct, help, assist when it comes to coercive control or situations regarding that. Post-cult education, uh, recovery, help. I am not a therapist. I will not give you therapy. I will not give you counseling. Um, and I'm not a motivational speaker or life coach or something. I'm somebody who can help with knowledge, education, guidance, and advice, and listening, okay? I have a, I'm, I'm more than happy to help with any of that. Uh, so you can contact me through askchrisshelton at gmail.com or through my website, mncriticalthinking.com. Links to all of this stuff is below. And as well, of course, we will wrap up with, uh, I will let you all know, I've got um, merch. That's yeah, also in the links below. And, and, ah, one last thing, um, ideal studio setup. I have created a wish list on Amazon, link below, um, and that wish list is something you can help me with, with specific things I need uh, to really up my game here. I, I, I kind of did a whole little figure out on that and put a bunch of items there, and if you want to help with that, and if it's too much and if that seems like, oh, God, I can't spend that much on you, Chris, I totally get it. You can also just help through PayPal, Venmo, uh, buy me a coffee, links below to all of this stuff, and support the channel. Let me know you want this to go toward, you know, my ATEM Mini or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I would really, really appreciate it. I can't, I just don't have the resources to build up the way I want to right now. And if you can help me with that, I could up this game and uh, take it to the next level. And that's what I'm trying to do by putting an ideal studio here in my in my home so uh so please help me with that and with all of that thank you very much you guys are awesome and i will see you next time